Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille, and I'm talking from the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. A little over 10 years ago, the financial world was rocked by a financial crisis whose magnitude had not been seen since the crash of 1929. In the USA, Lehman Brothers went bankrupt, Merrill Lynch, AIG, Freddie Mac, and Fannie Mae had to be rescued by the government. In the UK, HBOS, the Halifax Bank of Nova Scotland, the Royal Bank of Scotland, Bradford and Bingley, Fortis, Hypo, and Alliance and Leicester all came within a whisker of going under and had to be rescued. In Canada, well, nothing happened. To explain that lesson, Christopher Kobrak and Joe Martin, two professors at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto, wrote a book. It's called From Wall Street to Bay Street, The Origins and Evolution of American and Canadian Finance, and it's published by the University of Toronto Press. Professor Kobrak passed away over a year ago, and Joe Martin had to complete the manuscript on his own. Joe Martin is something of a legend, a longtime consultant. Historians will one day say that he invented the term, He slowly followed his passion for history and started teaching business history at Rotman almost 20 years ago. He's president emeritus of the Canadian National History Society and the founding president of the Canadian Business History Association. Joe, welcome to the mic. It's very good to be here. I've not been to this part of uh, the city before, (laughs) and I always like to visit different parts of the city. Welcome to Ryerson. So, Joe, where were you in September of 2008? What was going through your mind? Well, number one, I was teaching, and what I noticed was uh, the huge increase in enrollment. We had the largest enrollment we've ever had in one year, 50 students. This is in your business history course. Yes, and the second thing I noticed was uh, the superficial explanations of why we had done well, i.e., people were saying it was because of the government had blocked the big bank mergers in the late 90s, a decision I happen to agree with, but I think that was not fundamental to our success in 2008. And I guess then, as a guy who's pretty old and been around, you know, in Canada, uh, this was not as bad as the early 80s or the early 90s. Now, uh, let me unpack that for a second. You say your, your, your enrollment in your Canadian business history course was the highest ever. Why were students suddenly interested in your history? Well, because you had a crisis, and so what can they learn from the past? But, mm-hmm. you know, the time to study this is not at the time of the crisis, <laughs> beforehand. Right. And, uh, I mean, I have to ask, without being indiscreet, how was your portfolio doing that year? <laughs> well, it's, uh, I showed it to my good friend Tony Fell because it was like the highway from London to Windsor, really flat. Uh, and he said, how did you do that? I mean, I was only down 4.6%. And if you're miraculous. And if you're in this for the long run, a a one year decline in the midst of something like that, that wasn't bad. So you escaped pretty well. Good for you. Now, let's get back to your book, uh, From Wall Street to Bay Street. You and Chris Kobrak decided to do a comparative history. What what is it about the experiences of Canada and the U.S. that made it so different? Boy, that's uh, well, they're fundamental differences. Mm-hmm. The first difference is going back in history is that Canada has a Hamiltonian system and America has a Jacksonian system. Okay, so explain that. What do you mean by Hamiltonian? You're talking about well, Alexander Hamilton? Alexander Hamilton, and uh, my wife and I were recently in New York where we paid an enormous amount of money <laughs> for you? two seats in the back row, but it's a wonderful show. Did you enjoy it? I thought it was magnificent. Good for you. 
you're a hip hop guy. Good for yeah, you. Yeah, I'm. Ver- I, won't, I won't try and do any on the show, but. And, but and what you, do you mean by Hamiltonian banking? Well, basically, what Hamilton had a number of principles. I mean, this man was the closest seen to genius in any of that group of talented people around George Washington. And he believed very strongly that the United States needed a national bank, and he got that through in spite of strong opposition from Jefferson and Madison, and the first bank was established. So that's point one. Point two, the principles of uh, joint stock limited liability company, the notion of a bank with branches. And so in the recently released book on Bank of Montreal's 200th anniversary, they very specifically spell out the fact that their charter was almost identical to that of, of uh, to the first bank of the United States. And basically the principles, the limited liability, the branch banking, are characteristics of Canadian banking. But the Americans abandoned it. Yes, they abandoned it because of Andrew Jackson and his great battle with Nicholas Biddle, of, who was doing a very good job as the CEO of the second bank of the United States. So America deviated from the Hamiltonian pattern and established a Jacksonian pattern, which makes the American system so different from the rest of the world. I mean, the Canadian banking system varies from the rest of the world, but it isn't dramatically different, whereas the United States is dramatically different. I remember being at a business history conference at Case Western, and uh, there were a number of Europeans there, and we were discussing the American banking system, not only how many banks there were, but the fact that every year 100 new banks were incorporated, and the Europeans were stunned and so a good friend of mine, an American, Robert Wright, put his hand up and said, I can tell you about it. I'm starting a new bank. <laughs> He's in the audience. Yeah. And what possible market is not served? And he said, this bank will be for handicapped people in Chicago. And they had a strategic alliance with a company that provided transportation for handicapped people in Chicago when they were going to get some ventures. Now, I've never asked Robert how it worked out. But the point here is that the Americans opted for a system that was more democratic, more popular-driven, less regulated. Is that not the case? Well, yeah. Yes, I suppose it is. It's um, popular, except it was very much in control in the local community of the local establishment. And so you didn't really have a lot of choice because Jackson said banks could not cross state boundaries. And in many, many states, there could only be one branch. Right. You know, a Canadian takes it for granted that they can go from Victoria to St. John's and find their bank. Right. Uh, American doesn't, and that's one. It was one of the reasons why America had such extraordinary success with credit cards. But at the same time, these banks become very vulnerable. They have small markets. That's right. And they go bust. Right. And yet the Americans have persisted. Was it in your mind? Is it is it about politics or is it about the business community exerting pressure on the politicians? Where does this notion that banks should be so decentralized and so atomized come from? I'm going to speculate. One mm-hmm. of the and you know and I I really miss my co-author. Yes. Because he was a wonderful guy and uh, we we had many heated discussion. He and uh, he's an American. He's an American. Chris Kobach was an American. Yeah, he, not only an American, he's from New York. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I think he had three degrees from Columbia alone. Okay. 
So I have got, and I never had a chance to, to discuss this issue with him because, as you know, as the book was coming in close, you're just working to get at something done. But it seems to me that very simply, Canada favors the creditor, America favors the debtor. And, you know, if you want to talk about it, the stereotype of Canada is this left-wing country north of the United States, and they're great free enterprisers. But in their financial system, they're the left-wingers, and we're the right-wingers. Well, you've put your finger on what I think is the most important thing of this book, is that you really are pointing beyond the financial structures that make our countries different. You're talk, you put your finger on a fundamental cultural difference between us and our American cousins. I mean, the way they look at money is very different from the way we look at money. Right. And we wanted to show that the financial system, you, you mentioned the financial system, what do people think of? They think of big banks. But before you have any kind of financial system, you have to have public policy. Right. And so it's public policy and the financial system. And uh, the one, one of the great things about working with Chris was he would challenge me, you know, around McDonald and Cartier. He would say, um, well, how did those guys get along? Mm. I don't see how they got along so well. Uh, you know, our guys fought all the time. Well, when you stop to think about it, what it is about Canada originally was that French and English Catholic Protestant were very, very important. And so you had to make compromises. Now, one of the things you talk about in your book is one of the, the, the great compromises, and it really is at the root of the stability of banking in our country, and that's the Bank Act that John A. Macdonald pushed through. Can you tell us about that? Well, I think I'd like to go back okay, sure. to 64. Why and, not? <laughs> and, and the conferences. Yes. Charlottetown, Quebec City, and, and uh, London. Macdonald, mm -hmm. as you know, favored a unitary system. Yes. Lower mentions it, but not many historians since. He had a copy of the secret proceedings of the 1787 convention in Philadelphia where the Americans came to grips with the fact that what they had created wasn't working and they came up with something new. Not only did he have a copy, it was marked, especially in sections relating federal and provincial. And so the Canadians who were involved in shaping our first constitution didn't like the American banking system, and so they ensured that banking was a constitutional responsibility of the federal government. And you and I know historians who've written about Quebec City intimately, and they never mention that. But it's one of the most fundamental differences between our two countries. The federal government retained exclusive control on banking. Yes. How does that lead us to the Bank Act? The Bank Act of 1871. Well, we've got this new country with a lot of things to be done. And one of them, obviously, was a Bank Act. And so, because it's a parliamentary democracy, the Minister of Finance has the responsibility for this. But unfortunately, our first Minister of Finance, who was a father of Confederation and the first person to articulate the need for a new country in a legislative assembly, Alexander Tillich Galt, resigned because he was intimately involved in the Bank of the Midland District in Kingston. And it failed. It failed. And he wanted to be bailed out, just as the Bank of Upper Canada had been bailed out and Cabinet wouldn't go along with it. I think he was terribly disappointed in Johnny McDonald because Johnny McDonald was from Kingston. 
And so Johnny reached out for a new minister, and he chose his great friend, Sir John Rose, who, you know, like many people in Canada, was an immigrant from Scotland who'd done extraordinarily well. He was on the board of the Bank of Montreal. He was on the board of the Hudson Bay Company. He was a very close friend, not only of Johnny, but Edwin King, in effect, the CEO of the Bank of Montreal. And he produced a bank act in 1869, heavily influenced by King and by the American National Bank Act, which had been passed because the South was in disarray and the Republicans could jam it through Congress. But he resigned. Well, the reason he resigned is because I don't know if the thing lasted on the order paper 24 hours. The wild men of the West, i.e. from southwestern Ontario... (laughs) rose up and said, John A., we love you, but we will not accept this bank, which makes Bank of Montreal like the Bank of England, uh, makes the rest of us local banks, and furthermore, takes away our right to issue currency. So he, he resigned after two years, and he and his friend from the Bank of Montreal both left Canada. They both did well outside of Canada, but both left. So you're, not, you're still not three years into the country and John A. has to get a third minister of finance. Well, the good news is that he liked cabinet making, and I've gone through the list. He had a lot of choice. But the surprising choice was Sir Francis Hinks, who had been first minister, had been treasurer of the old province of Canada. He'd been out of the country in Barbados and Guyana as governor. And when you're governor, you've got to understand management and finance. And while he may not have been a Hamilton, he was pretty good. And he came up with the new Bank Act. He went out and talked to people. There's a process aspect to this as well as a content aspect. And he talked to journalists, to bankers, and politicians. And he produced the Bank Act, which we have to this day with the unusual provision that there had to be a review every decade. Now, Chris Kobrak, my colleague, said he knows of no other banking system in the world which has that. And the interesting thing is around the turn of the 20th century, government went to the bank and they said, look, you've proved you're sound and reliable. We can eliminate that provision. And the banker said, no, no, we like that contract, that contract between the banking community and the people. And so I would say Hamilton... Uh, banking in the Constitution, getting the right bank act with the review provision were what really saved us in 2008, but with one more to come in the 1980s. And what was that? That was the creation of the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions. I looked at some of the literature that came out immediately after 2008 and 2009, and there was a lot of discussion about path dependency. Yes. Well, the fact of the matter is we did not have path dependency in Canada. Path dependency, just to explain, is the idea that people, that organizations will follow essentially what they've done in the past. They just repeat what they do. They follow a certain path. Right. And you're saying it didn't happen. It didn't happen in Canada because there was not a great deal that happened between the 1980s and the 1870s. But in 1923, the Home Bank, which was not that far from where we're sitting right now with its head office, founded primarily for poor Irish immigrants from the famine, but also with depositors in the West, went bust. It failed. And Parliament had just completed their decennial review and had rejected Western requests that they establish an inspector general of banks. Well, they made up for that in a hurry, and we finally... In the early 20s, got an inspector general of banks. We'd had something comparable for insurance since the 1870s. 
Right. So this office grew and the Porter Commission came along and they spelled out, it's, uh, say, yes, this is a good system. They should rely on the, the auditors and the, the inspectors. But the inspector general, I don't think it's unfair to say that prior to the creation of OSFI, may have had a notion of coming to the corner of King and Bay and having tea four times, and that covered four of the five big banks. I mean, when the Alberta banks went down in the mid-'80s, the Inspector General of Banks for Canada was on a cruise, two-month cruise, and nobody asked him to come home. But we had not only those two, we had three other banks taken over, including the Bank of British Columbia. We had all kinds of trust company failures, and on the corporate side, you had a mess with Massey and with Dome, etc., so they appointed the Estee Commission. Uh, Estee did a very thorough job. It came up with a recommendation to create an office of the superintendent of financial institutions, which put all the regulators on one place. So you got people talking to each other. And I think it was very important in the initial legislation, superintendent. It was a supervisory body. Canada doesn't get into the real nitty-gritty they want a big picture of the system. And but it serves uh, as a daily reminder to the bankers that they are being watched and that they do have to serve the public interest at some level. They make a lot of money, but they have to serve the public the public good. So you're, you're telling us that Canada succeeded relatively well coming out of the 2008 uh, financial bloodbath because we had a set of laws that got, went back a long time, a set of principles that went back a long time, and a structure uh, of regulatory structure that also was robust. Now, the Americans did not have that. The reality is that until 2008, the American economy, the American uh, financial system had done very, very well. There was a great deal of creativity. There was a great deal of wealth being created. You taught, you call it, you and, and Chris Kobrak call it the Pax Americana. What did you mean by that? Well, I think the Pax Americana was less related to the banking system but than to the whole system of what happened after World War II. That, and it was Chris's phrase. I mean, if you look at, uh, take a basic figure like uh, GDP, America's GDP as a percentage mm-hmm. of global NDP peaked around 1950. I mean, they ruled everything. And so that's what we were referring to when we were referring to the Pax Americana. They started dictating things in a whole range of spheres. In the banking thing, I don't know. No, they weren't as uh, compliant with Basel uh, 1, 2, and 3 as Canada was because Canadians are Boy Scouts. And, okay, that's what we've agreed. In fact, the standards in Canada, when Mackenzie was uh, first superintendent, were more demanding than Basel 1. Okay, just again to, to make sure our listeners understand, when you talk about Basel I, these are the international uh, conventions that were right. created after 2008? Well, the pro- no, the process had begun before, before that. that. Oh, this yeah. To well, establish before. rules of liquidity right. and, and that kind Capital of thing. Capital requirements. Capital requirements. Yeah. And the Americans are simply not compliant. Well, many of them aren't, and they fight. Yeah. And, and the Americans are interesting. They, they, they fight things that you wonder why they fight them. Because hmm. uh, so they're Americans. Yeah. <laughs> It is a very, very different system, and they're very different people. You could have written a book about the 2008 uh, crisis, but you decided to write a history. 
Now, you, you come at this honestly. You're, you're, you're a businessman. You're a businessman most of your career. Why, why a history? Why not simply a, I mean, a, a really good book on, on the crisis of 0809? What, what is it about history that, that animates your mind? Well, I remember it was, I was not the inspiration for the book. The, book, the inspiration for the book was Chris Kobrak. And Chris, uh, although born in Brooklyn, both his parents had come from Europe, his father from Germany, his, uh, and he was Jewish, and his mother from Ireland, she was Roman Catholic, which certainly uh, contributed to the fact that Chris was different. And he worked most of his life in Paris, but he also did a lot of uh, research work in Germany, and he really knew these other systems. And I think one of the reasons we were able to get him to come to Canada was one more challenge, one more thing to learn about. Mm -hmm. And so he looked at the results and he said, what is it in the system, in, in, in the total system, and looking at the, the, the culture, et cetera? I mean, he pushed me hard on things like, what was the the Annexation Manifesto of 1840. I said, Chris, it's not a big deal. I don't believe you, you know. So, uh, and when we're talking about uh, Macdonald and Cartier, uh, I pointed out to him that George Etienne Cartier did not have an S at the end of his name. Right. He was named after King George III, of all things. Very much. And uh, so he, he was the inspiration, and I think Chris is a real historian. I have been interested in history all my life. So, and my my gut reaction against that business of, oh well, the, the government saved us because they didn't allow the big bank mergers. And I, you know, I've got a case on that, and it was an important decision. Well, because I mean, the reality is that the Canadian system is has proven flexible, hasn't it? I yes. mean, there were changes made in the 80s and the 90s, the collapse of the four pillars, as it's called. I mean, tell us about that. Did that ultimately help the banks wither the storm of 2008? Well, let's talk about the four pillars per se, mm -hmm. because, you know, I I have heard people talk about the fill, uh, four pillars as if we had Glass-Steagall. Right. But we had four pillars long before Glass-Steagall. And I, you can't on the internet find out why we have four pillars because the term four pillars is used in so many places. But basically what it did was separate investment banking, commercial banking, life insurance, and trust company. It was a system, that whole system was a system because two of those were federal and two were provincial. But they were ingrained and that was the way it was. But the then Minister of Finance, Michael Wilson, I think looking far more to the UK than to the US said, the world's changing and we've got to change with it and this is something we're going to do and that had to require provincial agreement. So when they collapsed, I think the major criticism of the collapse was, uh, you know, and Hal Jackman, a very distinguished uh, citizen of our community, uh, former lieutenant governor, former chancellor of the University of Toronto, but also a very successful financier, said, oh, sure, they say anyone can buy anyone, but the banks are the big guys, and they have the resources. So the banks moved out and acquired acceptance companies and trust companies, etc. Because that was the policy. They were collapsing the four, right. uh, the, the four pillars meant that a bank could acquire an insurance company. In the past, that could not happen. And, and acquire trust companies also. Yeah, so we had a universal banking system. 
Now, the, the fact of the matter is that they may be in the insurance business, but certainly uh, our three major insurers uh, are doing extraordinarily well, although uh, based on what's happening the past few weeks with China, I'm a little bit worried for Manulife because they've got a big investment there. The point is, though, that the, the government did respond in the 1980s, the Mulroney government, seeing that the banks might be vulnerable, that they needed uh, to bulk up uh, in order to face international competition. Because the reality is that banking today in Canada, uh, I mean, has not kept up. We used to be among the biggest banks in the world. But today, uh, the you know, we only have three uh, banks in the top 50 in the world. The RBC is number 30. The TD Bank is number 31. And the Scotiabank is at 45. This is in the top 50. Most of the, the top banks are Chinese now. Have we lost? I mean, again, the government is helping the banks. We want strong banks, banks that can withstand the the, the, the terrible ups and downs of, of, of the financial markets. But how is Canadian bank doing today, do you think? I mean, 10 years later, I mean, is our banking system competitive? Is our banking system strong enough, vibrant enough to take on international competitors? Well, j- just remember, the league tables, as you refer to, depend heavily on uh, exchange rates. Yes. And so we're down from 100 not that long ago, so that brings us down. So I would use other measures than that. Okay. Our Canadian banks are very strong across Canada in the retail operations. Uh, and in addition to those banks, we have the Caisse Populaire. Yes. And that is a very yes. important, powerful movement. Quebec, Prairies, B.C., and so Canadians have alternatives. I happen to have closed my Caisse Populaire account recently, but I've, for years I had both an account with a bank and an account with my local Caisse Populaire up in uh, near La Fontaine. So right. I think that's point one. And we've got competition in service, and sometimes if you're not satisfied with your bank in an area, if you're fortunate, for, this may not... It's not coming out right. If you're fortunate enough to live in Toronto. <laughs> You'll find a bank anywhere. Yeah, that's right. And so you've got lots of choice. All you have to do is walk around. But the in, in, in beyond that, uh, where you find the real differential amongst the five banks is what's their international strategy. I mean, TD is... You know, the, the online bank, the uh, online trading, mm-hmm. they're number two or number one in North America. Strong presence in New England. And it, I, I've been noticed a surprised number of branches they have in New York City. Mm-hmm. So there's that. Uh, Scotiabank in Latin America. And, very strong. And in Asia. Yes. Um, BMO in Illinois and that central area there, which uh, I've been told that the... Um, what they paid for Harris Bank back in the 70s or 80s, uh, the, the building that they acquired is now worth that much. Really? It was a good deal. It was a very good deal. Uh, so we're talking about the Royal. They're doing much more. In it. They pulled out of the retail side. They're much more on the investment side. Right. And Commerce is trying to figure out what to do. So, uh, and in talking about the Caisse Populaire, Desjardins, not only founded the first uh, Caisse Populaire in Canada, he was at the opening of the first Caisse Populaire in the United States of America. Mm-hmm. 
and he was a big influence there. Yeah, he campaigned aggressively in New England uh, among the French-Canadian population right. uh, that was there. Right. And, of course, they're now moving into insurance heavily and uh, have taken over, I mean, a lot of insurance companies. Right. So your point is that we can turn to history to understand this aspect of Canadian history, this aspect of Canadian economic history, of banking history, in a way that we've not done before. I mean, historians have shied away from looking at banking. And your book reminds us that events like the 2008 crisis, 2009 crisis, have explanations and that history can can shed a light on how institutions have been fortified over time. It's a complex mechanism of policy, of, uh, of politicians, uh, but also of, of, of bankers, um, individually and collectively. Playing a role in 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 shaping the uh, in shaping policy. I mean, let's not be uh, shy about this. The Canadian Bankers Association is very uh, very powerful, and um, there, but there has been a cohabitation. Right. I want to leave. You, I want to ask you one last question. Because the question that's often asked about the Scottish heritage of our banking. Do you believe in that? Is there something particularly Scottish about the way our banks behave? <laughs> What's your thought on that? Uh, when I uh, started the course. At, at Rotman, I used the case method primarily, and uh, the first decision I made is we've counted enough beaver pelts. Yes. Uh, so it's not going to be about, you know, fur, fish, farm, and forest. It's going to evolution into modern capitalist society. So I said, almost intuitively, I select selected banking, and one of my reasons is I felt the students would think that everything in business came from the United States. And uh, I assumed at the time that banking came from the UK. So I took Bob McIntosh out for lunch, who at that time would have been in his early 80s, he's now 95, I had dinner with him Monday night, and uh, asked him to write the first case on the Bank Act. And we're having coffee and he said, you realize we have a Hamiltonian system. And I almost spilled my coffee all over the floor. And I was stunned. I said, no, I didn't realize that. Note his last name, Macintosh. Yes. Uh, he said, a lot of people think that we got the system from the Scotland. We didn't. We, got, we have a Hamiltonian system. What we did get were a huge number of Scots and what I noticed when we were in the in the Bank of Montreal archives, they came here, but I guess my, my father was an immigrant from the United Kingdom. And after you've been here 15 years, you're a very different person than if you'd stayed in the old country. Sure. You take on the color, the attitudes of the new country. And so there were a lot of Scots in the system, but the fundamentals came from this Hamiltonian system. We didn't go for free banking, which was prevalent in Scotland. A very Canadian adaptation of an American a model. Right. Very rare in our country, and yet uh, that has led to one of the shinier examples, or shinier aspects of our economy, isn't it? I mean, the reality is that our banking system functions, our banks are fairly competitive, they are they are vibrant around the world, and um, again, maybe history can help us understand that. Right. Thank you very much, Joe, for uh, shedding light on this 
this important topic that we just don't talk enough about, right. Canadian economic history and Canadian banking history. I was speaking with Joe Martin, a co-author with the late Christopher Kobrak of From Wall Street to Bay Street, The Origins and Evolution of American and Canadian Finance. It's published by the University of Toronto Press. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Canadian Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more about what the Society does, including its publications, its blogs, and more about these podcasts. There's even a place to become a member and a sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's history. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation and the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University for their support of these recordings. My name is Patrice Dutille. This interview was recorded in the Allen Slate Radio Institute of Ryerson University. It was recorded on December 14, 2018 and produced by Heather Goh and Lily Robbins. Thank you, everybody, and we'll see you next time.